Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. And I said, I want to win the league, but I want to win it better. You can understand that, can't you? Yes. Good luck. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. <laughs> second captain, first captain, whatever. There was a moment during halftime on Sunday, just after the referee blew the whistle, maybe about 20 seconds afterwards, the crowd were all going absolutely crazy. Uh, but it started making me believe that Ireland could actually beat New Zealand. Brian O'Driscoll, if you remember this, was just picking himself off the ground. He was, yep. had a bit of a knock at the end of the half. Rob Kearney stayed out on the pitch for a little bit. I'm not even sure if he knows why he was still out there. It looked as though maybe he was going to help O'Driscoll in if O'Driscoll needed that, but I think he was just soaking up what was going on. And he had the Podrick Harrington major winning eyes. He was... They were all very intense on Sunday, all the Irish players, all emotionally um, at a pretty high level. Mm. But I thought Kearney embodied it. And in fact, a lot of them had that similar... Now, slightly crazed look on their face. I know Murphy takes more than an intimidating look to beat New Zealand. Mm. But it's a start. It's a a bare minimum. You need to look a Mm. bit like Potter Harrington when he used to win majors. And I think it's... it's, You know, you kind of expect it from Peter O'Mahony. Or, you know, you expect it from maybe Paul O'Connell or Sean O'Brien. But when it's, you know, Ireland's most handsome man, uh, laid back relaxed, loud man, Rob Kearney, who looks like he's about to run through a brick wall. Uh, yeah, it, it kind of hits home a little more than maybe maybe it would otherwise. Can you enjoy the match? I did. Um, I mean, what more can one say? Enjoyed it, though? Not well, we're, really. We're, we're doing a full show on it right now. Well, so I knew... We have to keep I'm, talking for the time being. I mean, it was, it, was, it was... There was a real sense of inevitability about it from the point at which Ireland went... 22 points or scored their 22nd point was there an inevitability about it though because we all thought that up until uh, up until about the 78th minute yeah then you're starting thinking ooh Mm. ooh, it's not so so inevitable anymore the minutes between about 78 and 78.30 were the that was the moment (laughs) which I thought Ireland was actually going to win the game I was away in Barcelona for the weekend and I watched it in an Irish bar can I know it's a kind of a stereotypical Irish thing to do on holidays but you, you feel you can justify going to an Irish bar when there's a big match to watch I did lose my way uh, misread the directions to the Irish bar got that in the end missed, missed the first 20 minutes arrived in glanced at the screen and it's, it's, I saw 19 nil, and it was took a minute to process in my mind or certainly a few seconds I thought straight away ah, gee, why did I bother coming in we're already 19 nil down 
yeah. 20 minutes gone this is going to be depressing and suddenly I kind of looked everyone looked kind of happy I looked around again crowd are really chipper <laughs> despite yeah. the, the early setbacks and you could see I wasn't the first person to arrive late and have the exact same shocked reaction when I realised Ireland were 19 nil up because you could see the people who, were, who had been there from the start were kind of laughing away going oh, a few people have obviously trickled in and just look at double take looking at the scoreboard so after I arrived in I watched Ireland score three more points over the last 60 minutes mm. You, uh, it could be, could be said that you'd missed so, some of the highlights there from an Irish perspective. Maybe it's my fault, Murph. I don't know. Some people are blaming Ian Madigan, maybe saying he you know, mm. made a bit of a defensive misread there. Uh, the penalty was given away by McLaughlin, maybe, was it? So, uh, it could be Jack there. McGrath. Or, Johnny Sexton. Jack McGrath or Johnny Sexton. Maybe it was possibly my fault. Possibly should have scored that. For jinxing. Kick. I mean, I was trying to explain to my wife. She said, this, is, this looks quite difficult. I said, no, this is not difficult. And then, obviously, yeah, I suppose... It's it's the situation that makes it difficult, isn't it? You can't replicate the conditions, I guess. Mm. Just 105 years of history lying on this next kick. But hey, listen, just go through your processes, uh, Johnny. <laughs> it's not quite I know you're carrying an that. injury there as well, but just yeah. don't worry about that. Put the injury to the side and just kick this over the bar and then we'll be fine. Keith Wood was apparently, I didn't see it, and I was struggling to speak on the BBC afterwards. He was so emotionally involved. They were, you know, they were asking him to analyze what was going on yeah i was i was watching it on the bbc actually, you, yeah. and uh yeah it wasn't even so much that it was just oh look i'm just really disappointed so if you could just give me 10 minutes here come back to me in 10 unfortunately the bbc coverage ended about seven or eight minutes after the end of the game so i'd say you know a quarter of an hour after they went off air keith wood could have really broken down what exactly happened but for kind of the seven or eight minutes that they had he was just totally crestfallen. I was like, yeah, well, you know, sports just being really, really annoying today. So I'd rather not talk about it. Shane Horgan right. managed to hold it together on RTE. He's on with Eddie O'Sullivan with us shortly. Gordon Darcy had, was probably uh, as much as we said that Rob Carney embodied what Ireland were all about. Gordon Darcy had one of his best ever days in an Ireland jersey, it's fair to say. We're going to talk to him in a little while as well. And Paul Kimmage compared it to Fignon Le Monde in 1989. That was the Tour de France where Greg Le Monde came from 50 seconds down in a time trial. For some reason, there's a time trial Over at the 20, last stage. 24 kilometres. Yeah, and Fignon, this absolutely long. broke Laurent Fignon, not just for that race, but by the great French rider. He'd already won two Tour de France's, at least one, yet two Tour de France's. Never won another one and just kind of emotionally never recovered from it. I know Paul and people who were around and riding at that time or covering it at that time see it as one of the, the all-time uh, kind of great heartbreaking stories. So we'll just talk to him a little bit about that. Let's relive Sunday, first of all. Returned by five points, 22 to 17. It's available here now. Ireland inching their way towards the 22. Mike McCarthy would never hold on to it as he tried to pass it. McCarthy for Ireland. It's back with Luke Fitzgerald to mind the fancy stuff. We have 30 seconds remaining. Back there, the referee's whistle has gone. It's a penalty for New Zealand. Oh, I don't believe it. It's about possession. Rob Carney in the 
This is going to be a fan try. Wow! Not a man is in his seat. One last chance. One spin of the dice for both teams as New Zealand have it now. Back with Aaron Smith towards Cruden to Kieran Reid. Kieran Reid tries to get around Kevin McLaughlin. He's brought play inside the Ireland half of the pitch. Across on that far side is with Ben Smith. Time is up here. New Zealand desperately trying to get their hands at the ball. Back at Manano. Manano now gets it free towards Ryan Craddy inside the 22 metre line. New Zealand sweeping in to Cruden. Cruden in a midfield possession to Frank Seas. Stopped there as tracks by Jamie Heaston. He doesn't release. Back with Aaron Smith. New Zealand have numbers now. Across on the far side of the pitch as they go away with this one. And cut through the cover. There's massive defence by Ireland. They're trying to gather this one back. Four yards short to the line. It's come back to Van Anu. Man now comes with it. Darcy tackles onto ground. The man from the Lansdowne Club with uh, New Zealand now. They have it. Swept it back to Cruden. Moves it out on the near side towards Dane Coles. Gets through the cover. New Zealand through Ryan Crotty. Getting for the try on the near side of the pitch. Oh, yeah, I don't believe it. Ryan Crotty scores! Oh, my goodness! They've managed it. It's 22 each. Yeah, wonderful commentary there, both from our New Zealand friend and particularly Michael Corcoran there on RTE. Quite reminiscent of we uh, a clip we played not so long ago on this show when Eamon Dunphy was in studio and uh, Ireland. we were talking about the famous Ireland defeat to England back in 1957. It was only a draw, of course. Yeah, it was a draw, but it stopped us from qualifying and allowed it. And it was the commentator that day, Philip Green, I think it was, was just equally shell-shocked. I think that commentary could uh, hopefully become... Well, it would be more iconic if we'd actually won the game and we'd be able to talk about it. Yeah, that kind of e- well, eerily similar and then just also very eerie to have this absolute cacophony of noise, at, <laughs> as Ken was saying, 79.30 when we had the ball and then, you know, whenever it is, two minutes later, total silence. We are joined by Gordon Darcy to talk a little bit about this game. Gordon, your 75th cap for Ireland, was it one of the most emotionally draining matches that you've been involved in? Um, yeah, without I think in my rugby career to date, uh, from Wexford Wanderers, Longos, Leinster, are like that's yeah, that was you know the hardest one to take, and you know the emotions after the game was it was just uh, you know it's very hard to describe. I never had that feeling before, and it's pretty it's pretty bad. Was there? I mean, you could see how shell shocked the players were in the pitch, and obviously the supporters and everybody everybody watching it in the dressing room afterwards. Is there any point anybody even? Speaking up, or do you just sit there and try and suck it up? Um, a little bit of both. You kind of have to sit there. You've got to, you got to, you know, whatever you have to do to pull yourself together, really, after something like that. But then, you know, the leaders and the leadership group um, and Joe, they've got to say stuff and everything. Like it can't, it it can't mean nothing. <laughs> I know that was kind of almost like a a strange thing to say in the wake of a, of a game like that but we've all you know there's a few lads who've been in positions like this with uh, Ireland where we've had one-off games and it's uh, essentially eventually led to nothing so I think there is a great greater understanding in this group that um, you know we want a performance like that to be a building block so you know if we didn't get it we, we haven't gotten a win out of it so let's 
you know, let's use that to inspire something better. I think that does actually make sense. And even Joe Schmidt talking to the media afterwards was already talking about the Six Nations and saying, you know, that's our that's our tournament. That's the, the tournament that we're involved in next. And he, so essentially what you're saying there is something that he was talking about in public as well, but having to build on it. I, I, I would wonder the emotional intensity that you guys brought to that game. Is it possible to get to that pitch week after week in a Six Nations context? Um, well, the All Blacks do it. Mm. So, you know, we've got to aspire to be the best. Uh, those guys did it. Uh, they played, did they play 13 tests this calendar yeah, it was year? 13, I think, yeah. Yeah, so they've, like, they did it for 13 games in a row. We were just asking to do it for uh, six games in a row. Five more on top of the one we just played. Was, so, uh, yeah. I don't think it's, I don't think it's that... Bigger, um, bigger challenge to ask you. You know, you look. You want to win the Heineken Cup. You've pretty much got to win what, nine games in a row. Um, so, I, I like. I personally don't think it's that big of a, uh, a a challenge. And if it is, you probably shouldn't be wearing, you know, a green jersey. I think what people were surprised about in terms of the the way Ireland played in uh, on Sunday, just the the difference from the weekend before against Australia, and that, that's obvious enough. So, I guess that's why it took the public certainly by. Uh, but it almost shocked everybody how good Ireland were compared to what had happened the previous week. But just even hearing what some of the players were saying before and after, it seemed like you guys, as the week progressed, did you kind of know that you were getting on top of things and that you produced a performance? Yeah. Um, well, we always knew there's a performance in there. I think, you know, probably today is not the best time to be doing it, even this week, maybe in two or three weeks' time. If you look back and actually you know, put the three tests under, regardless of the results, if you actually put the three tests under um, a bit of a microscope, you'd actually see the, the progression and the template that was beginning to uh, emerge. Uh, so I think from that point of view, you know, a, a lot was a lot was achieved. Uh, that's something that Joe Schmidt talked about as well, that he felt that the Australia performance was a step up, it got closer to what you were trying to do. It looked pretty bad from the outside, but there were some things that were getting a little bit closer, and that's and that was a progression that was continued against New Zealand. Yeah, I mean, I, I do, I do definitely think that. I, I think there was a couple of one-off, um, not not one-off, but a couple of mistakes in the Australia game that you know those people will never make those mistakes again. Um, and then there was also, you know what turned out to be a bit of external factors in the Australian team, which was good motivation for them uh, to play well. Uh, so all those kind of things probably, you know, were a little bit outside of our control. Gordon, the end game, the last minute or so, was there any more that Ireland could have done as a group of players? Was there? Was it that there was just a, a, a shred of doubt, maybe a tiny bit of a lack of belief or anything like that? Is it going back, looking back, would the with a lot of you think there was something that could have been done differently? You know, yeah, like a hundred different things you could do differently. But like, would would have it would it have stopped the stopped them scoring? Like I think, you know, it looks. Well, I actually I've just looked at bits and pieces of it, and yeah, there's definitely. Uh, there's definitely bits and pieces that could have been could have been done differently, and uh, you know, once that penalty was given away in their half, they had to score a converted try to win. So, you know, we can push 14 people across the line, and we can uh, do the basics. I, I think, I think I talked about from United Media earlier in the week was it's you know what make what sets these guys um, ahead of everybody else. They do the basic skills under immense pressure really, really well. And 
like did they do like was there a rabbit out of the hat in that final three minutes really there really wasn't guys carried the ball hard and square their cleaners were their barrels cleaning out rooks were good some of them were in the side but uh they cleaned hard, they ran hard, they passed accurately and they eventually got over for, for a try. So we have to kind of look at that and go, well, we have to try and emulate that in defence. So we were dominant in defence for the whole of the game. So we just needed to do the basics really, really well in that final three minutes. There needed to be one-on-one tackles, one guy in the rook. We didn't need to put three or four people into a rook because we'd said all week... One tackler, one barrel, mess up their rooks, and the rest of everybody else get on the feet and have a green wall in front of them. Was there panic? Is, is that is that a something that's brought about by a little bit of white line fever or whatever cliche you want to use? Um, again, it, it's very very hard. It didn't it didn't seem like there was any panic. Um, you know, I was pretty I was pretty comfortable defending in and around with the guys in or, in or around me. I was in that last rook, so I don't really know what happened uh, directly afterwards. But um, I'm sure there's I'm sure there's some something that could have been done better. You said that the you've already watched bits and pieces. Is that um, was that a conscious thing? Did you have you deliberately looked at certain parts of it, or have you just caught caught highlights, or what is it? Because it would seem to me that it'd be a very hard game to look back on. I uh, just caught highlights. Okay, yeah. Um, it was, I know, like, I'll definitely, you know, when I, you know, but I've got to switch back into Lancer now. Yeah. <laughs> so there's no, no rest for the wicked. I literally have to sw- switch back in. And already my head is kind of spinning from all the, all the calls. It's like, oh, God, what are, the, what, what are these what are these calls? But I, like, I will have a good look at that. And uh, I know Joe will definitely have a few add-ons for me uh, from the weekend. And, you know, he's, he's not going to be sending me, in, he's not going to be ringing me and telling me, oh, it was great. He's going to ring me and say, the six things you did wrong in the game. I want you to be better. Uh, so there's going to be a lot of. Uh, I want to improve from that game, and uh, for me personally, you know, with the next 18 months ahead of me, I want that to be, I suppose, the uh, as well for Ireland. But personally, I want that to be my my standard that I don't dip below. Yeah, and I think people were very happy for you, Gordon, because I saw, as you said, you did a bit of media earlier in the week, and you were talking about being at a stage of your career where you're fighting for your place. Of course, you're always doing that, but you're having to to keep keep pushing on to keep your head above water there and you certainly did that you seemed heavily involved you seemed to be really enjoying yourself out there on Sunday um, yeah I definitely am like um, it was kind of I was talking obviously uh, about Luke and you know the quality that he brings and um, if we spur each other on and get the best out of each other and whoever gets picked is the best thing for Ireland um, and I'm, I've always been happy uh, to fight for my place and fight for anything. And I always felt that that brings out the best in me. Um, I'm a competitive guy by nature, and this is no different. And I am fully, fully believe that having strength and depth is vitally important for for Ireland and for the players in those positions. So you know, over the 18 next 18 months, Luke and I are fighting away. He's got to start, I get to start, and whoever whoever deserves it is no. Whoever gets to start is knows that's going to deserve them, deserve that start. Um, and I like I, I said, I, I love the competition that's gonna that's gonna come with it. Yeah. Just lastly, when you said that the if you don't perform the Six Nations, that New Zealand performance essentially counts for nothing, and that's. The consistency, I suppose, has been one of the big problems over the last number of years, maybe since 2009. Do you, maybe it's too early to ask this, but do you feel that there's a springboard now that you can actually build on what happened and um, start performing like that every week? The opportunity is definitely there, but it's, it's one of those things. We'll look back after the, the tour to Argentina and we'll go, where are we as, you know, where are we as a country? What did we, 
what did we achieve this season? Did we did we live up to the to the talk, or did it, as per usual, just go 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 against the you know what we said? So I think the probably the best way maybe looking at it is the time for talk is over. You know, we did a lot of talking in the lead up to this November series, and to a certain extent, our actions are starting to speak louder than words. But the, the next challenge is we've got to we've got to have an end result, and that, I think rather than un, underachieving, we yeah, well, we we always do have those one-off games. But I think everybody is just dying for this team to be consistent at a level, and if we are consistent at that level, I think the results and the you know the performances will will follow. Yeah. Well, listen, Gordon, we appreciate you talking to us. We better let you get get back and learn those relearn those Leinster calls for the rest of the week. Thanks very much for talking to us. No problem at all. Thanks, William. Yeah, it's funny you could probably talk to each of the fifteen players about that end game and get a different answer as to what was going on. It's just, it's just the nature of it. They're out in the field, and as Gordon Darcy says, there. Well, I was stuck in a rock. <laughs> he said he felt comfortable. He said he felt okay himself defensively. He felt confident in the guys around him and you would think if 15 players had that mindset then we should have been okay although they were absolutely knackered is probably the mm. other point to raise at this stage but yeah you could ask, ask a different guy what happened and they might have had a clearer idea um, either way I don't think any of them are going to start naming names Yeah, and I, just it, interview every one of the Irish rugby players and ask whose fault was it yeah well I, I think you know you'd very quickly come to a consensus then though <laughs> you know that at least you're being journalistic about it you I mean you're asking all of the concerned parties and if we can come up with one name then I think that that might help the the grieving process. You know, we can just, you know, transmit all of our sadness into anger towards that one person. Scapegoating, I think, is what they call that. Madigan, is that, is that what you're talking about? <laughs> <laughs> no. We all saw it. Well, there were two pen- there was a penalty given away as well. There was a missed kick. I mean, That you know. would have all been okay. Nigel Owens, why don't we scapegoat the person not from Ireland? It's a lot easier that way. Well, he did his best. I mean, he. he I mean, is there any reason? Go back through the last four minutes of play and see is there anything we can stop this try for? That's basically what he asked the TMO to do. But, uh, yeah, no. Well, yeah, he gave them a, a ropey enough penalty to actually is, get them back into the game. That is actually true. But, well, yeah, we, he just checked everything else kind of between the ropey enough penalty <laughs> and the try going on. If you could just check all of that, yeah. see if there's anything we could do for these poor, sad <laughs> people who are all on the verge of... Yeah, Shane Horgan and Eddie O'Sullivan are ready to go lads thanks very much for talking to us about this we've just heard from Gordon Darcy who was quite interesting on when I asked him about the ability to get to that emotional pitch every week because already we have to start looking at the Six Nations and in that case you have to do it week after week it can't just be a one-off he did say to us well you know New Zealand do it every week so why can't we do it and if players aren't thinking that way really they've no business wearing the jersey is it possible to do that Shane? Um, it's difficult, that's for certain. And But I think that is the aspiration, and it has to be the aspiration. I'm glad that uh, Gordon Darcy said that. Um, luckily, across the course of the Six Nations, you know, and very often, uh, you don't have to bring quite that level of performance or intensity. And I know that that's, you know, doesn't sound great, but um, that was a you know, one-off game against the best team in the world. For Ireland to win that, and it showed at the weekend, you needed every single player performing almost at the top of their ability, both in skill-wise and intensity-wise. And even then, you might beat them. Um, there are games in the Six Nations where you can get through without every single player firing. 
at you know at the top level. I think emotionally, we always expect Irish teams to be fully committed and, and fully um, invested in in the type of performance that allows the skill level to drop off. You know, for one or two players, maybe not everybody will ha- will perform at the maximum, um, but that certainly is the aspiration. And I remember uh, being in teams with Eddie uh, and, and saying that is that is what he expected from us to perform, to try and perform at your, your best game every time you went out to play, um, to play for Ireland. It's a very difficult thing to, to achieve. It's a really good aspiration to have. Um, but as I said, um, the performance level that you saw uh, at the weekend is very, very difficult to create um, over the course of an entire Six Nations. What do you think, Eddie? Is that what you do have to create, though, to actually go and win a Six Nations title and win a Grand Slam? Well, you have to aspire to it, as Shane said, but you have to remember as well, the emotional response or the emotional intensity is part of of a bigger equation. You've got to be technically uh, excellent. You've got to be tactically excellent. You've got to be physically excellent. But if you take the emotional strand of that, there are different triggers as well to get to that emotional state, depending on who you're playing. Mm. I mean, you'd have different triggers when you play Wales. You'd have different triggers when you play England. You'd have different triggers for France. Those triggers might even change based on playing France in Dublin or France in Paris. So it's not that there isn't just a simple um, thing of, oh, well, let's get up there again. There's a process you have to go engage in. And the process changes even slightly from team to team. Um, so that in itself, you're not comparing like with like. You know, uh, as Shane said, to beat the All Blacks or even compete with the All Blacks, the emotional intensity has to be, in some cases, um, a bigger entity on that day. Like you have to be almost manic at the level you play at, um, and maybe in, in some ways you might trade against being accurate because you're so manic. But on occasions, if you're playing a team uh, like Italy, you know that if you're accurate on a day like Italy, you don't be that manic. You can still cut Italy apart if you keep your shape and you keep your accuracy. So it's 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 a rather complex question. It's not a simple thing of just getting up for the game. Um, but the bottom line is whatever mechanisms or whatever triggers. Uh, whatever uh, process you, you use, you expect every player to take the field in every game with the potential and the and, and the intention of playing the best game of their lives. And that is always the plan. And I suppose also, Eddie, you have to aspire to be like New Zealand, maybe with a different style of play, but the comparison isn't necessarily a fair one because in the 14 games that they've played this year, they haven't actually had to hit those emotional and tactical highs really, but they're so good, they can still just beat every other nation in the world anyway. Absolutely. If you look at them on Sunday, and when they review Sunday's game uh, in, the, in, the, in the privacy of the team room at some point, they will have to admit that in the first half of that game, they got, they got spanked in every aspect of the game. Defence, offence, physicality and intensity. We, we beat them off the park intensely. And in fairness to them, this is, the, this is what makes them what they are. In the second half, they were to dig themselves out of that hole and come back and win the game. And I don't think any other team could have done that. That's what makes them what they are. But they would have to admit that we were better than them in every facet of the game, certainly in the first 40 minutes. So they would be critical of themselves that they didn't deliver on their intensity as they expected. Um, so, you know, that's, it, it's, a very, it's a very difficult thing to quantify. And it's, it's also a very tricky thing to generate. And there's different ways of going about it, um, depending on the circumstances. Shane, we're talking about emotional intensity here, but even the physical toll. You look at Rory Best breaking an arm, Brian O'Driscoll coming off with concussion, Johnny Sexton, the, the, I suppose that hamstring issue maybe is more related to the amount of club matches that he's been playing. But it did strike me, 
if we had a match next week, how how would the team even have recovered in time to play it? I was sitting down beside Ronan uh, O'Gara, uh, just beside the subs bench, and it was like a war zone down there. It was like something out of Vietnam film. And the players coming off, I watched the the fight at the weekend. Uh, those boxers didn't look as badly beaten up as some of the Irish players that came off the field after the game. It was incredible, and it really reiterated the idea in my mind that you know rugby is such a, a physical game and has you know even in the couple of years that I've retired it has moved on to another level of physicality really in the last in the last 2 years or so uh, yeah, I, I really do. I think the players are better conditioned. Uh, they're they're not as fat as they were. Um, I mean, you know, relatively, you know, they're carrying less body fat. They're carrying more muscle, um, and their their muscle to weight ratio is higher. And that's that's happened. That's definite. That's definitively. There's empirical evidence of that. You talk to the strength and conditioning guys; they'll tell you that the guys now are faster, stronger, more powerful, less fat, and can run for for longer than they could two years ago. That's for certain. And, and as well, Jane, um, what you might just throw in there while you're on that point is that even a small thing like defenses, defensive lines. One of the big changes in defensive lines in the last few years is defensive lines get off their line a lot quicker. So now you've got five or six guys coming up like, like with their hair on fire and the guys with the ball are just getting melted in the tackle. Uh, it's and just Eddie, the way defence have changed. You're dead right. And that's the that's difference between... That actually was the difference between Ireland performing... Uh, against Australia and Ireland performing against totally. Australia. Their line Absolutely. speed was terrible against Australia. And then yep. they got into these massive collisions, that are like dangerous collisions, because they're getting up and getting in the face of New Zealanders. So you're, you're entirely right. And when I first started off, all defence was lateral, all defence was soft, and it was side-on side tackles. Now, if you get into a situation where you're making side-on tackles, as we saw against uh, Samoa and, and Australia, then you're very, very, you're very often exploited uh, because of that. Yeah, Shane, I know we've talked to you in the past about when players hit certain ages, maybe there's a tendency of fans to nearly start writing them off. Just while, before we leave the subject of Gordon Darcy, it's also linked into what you said about size. This is one of the relatively smaller guys, and yet he produces one of his probably all-time great performances for Ireland. I wish players, I wish people would keep on writing off Gordon Darcy because every time they do, he comes back and he plays a ridiculous game. And I have to say, that performance from him at the weekend was one of the greatest performances I've ever seen from, from an Irish centre, and that includes Brian O'Driscoll. He was remarkable. He was remarkable in everything he did. His work rate at the back end of the tackle was phenomenal. So he was making tackles, he was getting up, he was barging over, he was um, knocking guys down, he was getting in positions that slowed up New Zealand ball. If you noticed he was obviously identified at halftime in the New Zealand um, change room to say this guy is slowing up our ball he's having a huge influence on the game and they they went after him the second half you could see they actually went for a few cheap shots on him he was hugely um, influential in the game and it was one of the more remarkable performances I've ever seen it was so brave out of a guy who you, you acknowledged there isn't the, the biggest uh, centre especially in world games against um, two very very strong centres in New Zealand and particularly uh, um, Man Nanu, who's a massive carrier, and and Darius never took a, a backward step. It was it was something to behold, and it was uh, you know as I said, I just hope they keep on writing them off. But <laughs> as, soon as, as long as he yeah. can still take the field, uh, he should be he should be in there. Eddie Gordon Darcy says he doesn't think the last minute or so on what happened there was about panic. He said he was, he felt comfortable himself. He can't necessarily speak for everybody. Sean O'Brien says he doesn't think it was about fatigue. That there's no reason why they should have been more fatigued than New Zealand. So what did happen in that last minute or so? I, I wouldn't necessarily agree with that because I, I watched that last you know, two minutes of the game and 
tactically New Zealand changed. They, they, they didn't realise in the first half they couldn't get around our defence because we were playing up and in. Um, and if you remember, there was umpteen times where Nanu or even Cruden uh, or, or, or Smith had to duck back inside our defence and we gobbled them up. And to be fair to them, as they always do, they recognised that. So in the second half, they just went route one, pretty much one-off runners, punched up the guts. And it was really like a boxing match. They kept throwing punches. We kept having to take them. And they didn't kick the ball to us that much either. So we didn't get much chance to attack. So as the game wore on, we looked a bit ragged. I mean, Ben Franks, Troy, we were kind of really struggling at that stage. And they just punched holes at us. But then at the, at the last death, when they wanted to try and score with that last touch, they, they, they spread their defence very wide. If you watch those last few rocks, we were piling two and three guys in to defend the rock. Um, guys were just on their, on their knees at the time, and we just got a bit narrow. And we scrambled brilliantly a few times. Remember, they had a five-on-three going up the right wing or, or left flank towards mm. the Havelock square end. And there was a, an unbelievable cover tackle went in. And then they threw a loose pass, and Nanu picked it up got the game line, and then they got us on the other side of the field. So if you look through that, I mean, the best one in the world, guys were tired. Maybe, you know, some of them might have felt good, but you need all 15 guys. And I thought they had just worn us down a bit at that stage. They were smart enough to know when they'd worn us down and that we wouldn't get the width in our defence, and they went after us wide. Look, this is why I, I keep factoring in. Everyone was gutted by the loss. I still think it was an extraordinary Irish performance. And I, I, I may have coughed a bit of flack for saying it was the best Irish performance of all time, but I, I still stand over because it was against that All Blacks team. I mean, look, the way I look at it is, if Cruden's pass was called forward, uh, or a Crotty dropped the ball and the referee with the final whistle, and I said it was the best Irish performance of all time, nobody would bet an eye that say, you know, tell us something we don't know. No, based on that, you, you can't just dis- dismiss the whole performance based on the fact that New Zealand had that capacity, which no other team in the world has or will have, I think, for a while uh, to do that. So, like, I'm, I'm not trying to take from the performance. I think it was extraordinary. But I think in those last couple of minutes, they had beaten us up sufficiently uh, physically and they were smart enough to know we would struggle on the outside channels. And that's where they got us. And that's the, that's the harsh reality uh, of the way the game played out. But it's not a criticism. It's just just looking at the game in the cold, cold light of day. Shane, our best performance of all time? Uh, well, the only problem about that is it's pretty depressing if we think that our best performance ever was um, a loss. And But I totally get what Eddie is saying and I understand uh, the logic behind it. But as a player, if you're involved in that, you could never feel that that was the best Irish performance of all time because you ultimately lost the game and that's what you're there to do. So I don't think that... You know, if I, if I was involved in it, I certainly wouldn't be thinking along those lines. You know, I just couldn't. I couldn't get my head around it. It would be too painful, and I don't want to have to think of that pain every time I think of uh, the best performance I'll ever had. So, but you know, Eddie's point is well made. Um, I think to to just touch on what the the reason that yeah. Ireland led in the try at the end, I think it was very interesting because I was trying to you know f- figure out what they'd done wrong. Now they really didn't. The defensive shape wasn't bad. You know, they, you had to give a lot of credit to the way uh, New Zealand upped their intensity for that last, you know, three minutes, four minutes to score the try. It was a remarkable move. Every pass uh, hit the hands. There was no pass that wasn't in exactly the right area to catch. Um, they started carrying really, really strongly. And the problem was when they carried that strongly and Ireland were a little bit fatigued, 
and the pressure of you know what was seemingly inevitable was on the way. What happens then is players make slightly wrong decisions, and what they the only slightly wrong things they started to do was they didn't always trust the man inside them to make the tackle, and that's understandable. When you had like you know uh, some of these huge New Zealanders flying into gaps in between players, all of a sudden Ireland started to maybe commit to two to tackle. Now sometimes they had to commit two, but sometimes they didn't, and that that just wore down as the phases wore on more on there was more people on the ground all of a sudden two had to commit to the tackle on one another one in the rook then you have three so therefore you've got three in the rook that means that you're down to only 12 men in the defensive line and that increased and increased and increased into to a situation where they finally they worked that overlap and it was again it was uh, two players tackling one and you know it's not it's not a critique it was you know it's very very difficult to stop that from happening but uh, i think that in the you know if you want to learn from it in the future you really really have to trust every individual to do their job and then every individual has to do their job and if they don't you get away with it with any other team in the world i would have said the way ireland defended in that last couple of minutes any other team in the world that would have been sufficient to deny them but it just wasn't this all blacks team eddie joe schmidt after the game said he now has a much clearer idea over the three games really of what it takes of what is involved in managing the ireland team and coaching the ireland team i would imagine that's a kind of comment you'd be quite interested in yeah i think it's it's a learning curve for everybody when you get an international job you know um and uh, He's obviously had a number of things that he had to figure out. You know, the turnaround time, the injuries, uh, the guys he hasn't coached before, really, uh, and then trying to get those performances put together. So he is a lot wiser. There's no question about it. No matter who it is, not not particularly to Joe, no matter who was taking that job, you're, and you have a new squad, and you have three games in front of you, and you have three weeks to get everyone ready. And at the end of it, you're playing the world champions. That's a great way to focus the mind. But he is a lot wiser. I think he may... Uh, make some changes to how he tactically approaches things. He may make some changes as to how much information he wants to impart to players. I mean, I was Don Lennon talking to Don Lennon last night. Uh, he was of the impression that maybe in the first two weeks, particularly the Australia week, Joe might have tried to get too much information across to guys and it was a bit of information overload and they kind of forgot to play. They were so busy trying to process, you know. But certainly um, looking at the, 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 the starter players, um, uh, this week against New Zealand, they were slightly less complicated. They were much more direct, uh, much more aggressive, much more like in your face uh, against New Zealand. So obviously he made an adjustment around that. So yeah, he certainly what he said makes complete sense to me. We've been talking about other Irish sporting and rugby heartbreaks, and you, both you guys were involved, obviously, in the defeat to France of Vincent Clerc try at Croke Park. Shane, the recovery from that was swift and maybe that's what makes it all the more heartbreaking that Ireland showed how good they were the following week and maybe if it had been a similar performance against France then there wouldn't, it wouldn't have been so close with a couple of minutes to go but we did recover really well from that uh, do those kind of things make you believe um, I know there's no real relevance maybe to today but just in terms of uh, a heartbreaking defeat doesn't have to be the end of a team particularly one so early in its, uh, in its new management uh, setup. No, I think the opposite is actually the case. You know, I think there is a, there'll be a scar there. You know, and but it, it won't it won't remain a scar. It, you know, it won't remain a, an open wound. It'll, it'll scar over. It'll, it'll callous and it'll make them stronger. Uh, I've no doubt about that. These aren't the type of individuals that will crumble because they lost this game. It's actually they will have learned things about themselves and uh, realized the abilities in themselves that they maybe didn't know were there or weren't fully sure that were there that have now been um, confirmed. So 
I don't think that would be an issue. I think it is the most heartbreaking um, loss ever by an Irish team. I think it's one of the, honestly, think it's one of the most heartbreaking losses uh, in in the history of sports. I'm, I'm trying to think across all sports and which you know what game um, it has been a tougher de- de- defeat. And I don't know if there is one. That one against uh, France is still something that you know very occasionally I'd have a dream about that. Uh, about really? That, uh, last play? Yeah. It would what ha- what happens in the mind. dream? And the same thing, unfortunately, happens over and over and over again. The ball from the kickoff isn't received and they score the try. And uh, so it still now plays on my mind. And actually, if I think about it too much, you know, it actually it, it makes me sad as well. Because I think that we, you know, we could have gone on. We could have won that Grand Slam and, and we played so well that year. But at the time, although devastating, because it was the first game in Crow Park, it was a game against France. It was the last minute. And we also thought that we could have, uh, we, you know, we had potential to win the Grand Slam. But at the time, we didn't know that it wasn't like we were going to win the we'd won the Grand Slam if we had to regather that ball. They still had to play out, and you know who knows if things would have gone the same way against England, and who knows if we would have played as well in the rest of the tournament. Um, we didn't know that at the time. Whereas these guys knew that forty seconds from the end, they had beaten the All Blacks for the first time in over 100 years in the history of, of the game and beating them brilliantly, beating them by beating them up and beating them at the Mataron game, not by having a wet day and, you know, kicking it to the corners and dragging out a, a scrappy uh, drop goal or something like that. No, by playing phenomenal, passionate, skilled, accurate uh, rugby. And that was taken away from them in four minutes from from uh, four it four minutes into extra time. So for me, definitely the most heartbreaking loss in in Irish uh, rugby. But I'm I, I find it hard to find any across sport that are are much more um, much more painful. Eddie, do you still dream about that defeat? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think Shane made a good point there that you know that this will be a scar and a psyche. But a scar is not a bad thing. You know, I mean, we all remember. You know, we look at the scar on our knee when we were kids we climbed a, a barbed wire fence or something and it reminds us not to climb a barbed wire fence again so scars are good because they're good reminders of you know what went wrong before and, and you're always cautious of never letting that happen again so that, that's, that in itself is not a bad thing um, having said that as well I think we also if you go back to the French game that there was an, an element of, of us there was a kind of a steely came out of that that you know, we, we needed to, to put that right. And the only way we could put that right was the game, next game was against England. So we, we fed off that disappointment. Um, and there's a little bit of anger as well you take out of losing a game like that. And, and I think if you listen to the narrative from the players like Sean O'Brien and even Dars on the weekend, you could sense that anger with themselves. Um, and that's in the emotion of, of the post-game. But that anger will carry through to the Six Nations. And... I, I think all that is is can be used in a positive way, um, and and I, and I I've seen it being used in a positive way. A la the French move to the England game, so I'd be very very positive. As Shane is that we'll take this, um, what is a, a gut wrenching defeat of monumental proportions, but use those feelings to kick on into the Six Nations, and I, I think that's it's a challenge. It just doesn't happen, you know, overnight. You've got to be aware of it. You've got to be cautious of it. You've, you've got to also. Um, Put it into part of your process, and you've got to accept that that we we did we did fail at the death against New Zealand. But all that energy uh, and all that emotion can be channeled into the Six Nations. So that's why I'd be very optimistic coming out of this game. Okay, brilliant, Eddie. Thanks so much, Shane. Thanks very much as well. 
Thanks. Cheers. Great analysis as ever from the lads there, Murph. A particularly nice insight into the dreams that mm. Shane Horgan and Eddie O'Sullivan had. That was, was that was more than I bargained for at the start of that conversation. I was just thinking if if, if Shane was kind of thinking of you know whether he was sitting his English leaving cert while also having to deal with Van Sant Clerk scything through the Irish defence. Oh, that classic dream. Well, I mean, that a lot of people have. I do. I do still have that dream. Well, I haven't had it in recent does. years. My yeah. mother, who's like over sixty years of age, was telling me that she still has. There's no need to say your mother's age on air, Murph. Well, no, I'm just saying it's you know it's a <laughs> long, long time ago that she did the leaving cert, and she still has anxiety dreams about the leaving cert, which kind of shocked me to be honest. I mean, I suppose it's, it's a sign of a, good, a life well lived. I that's still the most. Yeah, I sometimes wake up. I sometimes wake up thinking, do I still work in Woody's DIY? And why do I not know the, about the questions about this hammer that I'm being asked by this customer? <laughs> That's your anxiety. That's my anxiety one. Yeah. The piece of wisdom that I took from it was Eddie O'Sullivan using the scars to remind the scars on his body to remind him of lessons he learned in his life. Climbing barbed wire fences. Yeah. Little tiny Eddie O'Sullivan was a maniac. Yeah. Mm. I, I've got the I've got stories. I mean, my scars teach me a couple of things. One of them was uh, don't jump into a jacuzzi <laughs> because there's often a, a step hidden beneath the foaming water that you can't see. Did you, like, bomb into the jacuzzi? I, ju- I jumped into it and, and, and slashed open my shin pretty badly on the, on the hidden step. Oh. Uh, and on my, sorry, on my face, I've got a kind of... I've compared it to Harrison Ford's scar. Yeah, this is when you were playing Gaelic football, isn't it? No, I was playing football against my brother. Football, I, I yeah. beat him with a piece of skill. He tripped me up and I smashed my face off the curb. Mm-hmm. So don't turn your back on... Uh, your, that was the closest little, to you. Don't your, trust your brother. As just as your little brother. Every scar has a lesson. Eddie's right. Uh, Murph, we are going to continue this theme of trying to contextualise the sporting heartbreak, but what I know you've been looking at, a, at a, or thinking of a few mm. incidents over the years, a few matches over the years that you can compare this to. Well, you know, yeah, well, I mean, we've, we've had loads of fun around the office talking about the worst, most sickening moments in Irish sporting history. And we have to say that there, there is quite a long list to choose from, which I think, you know, reflects well on us as a sporting nation. And we decided against including any GA heartbreaks because, say, for instance, Seamus Derby, you know, was a name that would have come up quite a bit. Um, but, you know, he did deny Kerry the five in a row, and that was bad for Kerry. But at least half the country was celebrating or indeed laughing at Kerry at the time. So there's no real point in including That was an them. amazing moment for most people in Ireland, I think. Mm. Kevin Foley's goal in 1991. Made Mo- moving a, along. Made a young, moving along. Made a young old McDevitt. Moving cry, along. Cry into his banana, as he was telling us last week. But, you know, it's against the dub, so that's obviously not going to make it. And then we got loads of tweets from people when we asked uh, when we asked people to text in their most kind of sickening, heartbreaking moment in our sport. Loads of them, just one word, Mayo. And that was it. Just Mayo. But that's probably a whole other story, to be honest. So our first choice, uh, number five in our list of top five most heartbreaking moments in our sport, Topic we've already mentioned on the show today, just uh, Shane Horgan just a couple of minutes ago, that Van St. Clerk try in the last minute of the first ever game of rugby played in Crow Park on the opening weekend of the 2007 Six Nations. So that was the start of a year where Ireland were Ireland's best ever rugby team, you know, we're basically going to march through the Six Nations and then end up winning the World Cup in uh, the Stade de France in 2007, which isn't quite how it worked out. Uh, number four, we went to Euro 88 as a team of Thistlearst no-hopers and uh, just 10 days later we were on the verge of qualifying for the European semi-finals. All we needed to do was to hang on for eight more minutes against the Dutch and uh, then of course Vim Keeft scores the stupidest goal in football's long and storied history and uh, we were toast. But he's a ver- we've spoken to the man and he's an extremely, extremely nice man. We should, man. Uh, Vim Keeft. Uh, so sport, obviously can sometimes be a total bastard. Mr. Dear, that's only number four. Number four, because last Sunday was number three, uh, Ken. 
uh, over a century of us getting beaten by New Zealand continues with another example of us getting beaten by New Zealand. But this one really, really hurt. So uh, the last moment, and as we were talking about earlier, very, very similar to the number two on our list, which is, of course, the Ireland-England game in 1957, the Philip Green commentary that you've already referenced there. Uh, We're on the verge of uh, qualifying for the World Cup, 1-0 up against England, and uh, they go and score in the last minute. Daily Mount falls into a funereal silence, and uh, Ireland, Irish football, you know, basically descends into a funk until Euro 88. But our number one is, of course, most heartbreaking moment in Irish sport has to be Thierry Henry and his cheating, cheating way. So much of that night still really annoys me to this day. The handball itself, obviously. Ken Early's frenzied on-air reaction. Henry sitting down beside Richard Dunn in the centre circle at the end, pretending that he's, you know, the great lad. Uh, the whole 33rd team in the World Cup. And, of course, our own shrieking sense of injustice, which demeaned us all in the eyes of the world <laughs> for a number of years there. Still a bloody... Blatant effing handball, though. Let's not forget that for for a moment. I have to say, I was actually a lot angrier about the Macedonia goal that knocked us story that that stopped us from qualifying for Euro 2000. Under McCarthy. Yeah, that was the angriest thing I've but ever been watching a football match. A cheaty McCheaterson goal. It was just inepty McGinnepterson. <laughs> I mean, when you know, you literally got to defend for ten more seconds against Macedonia. Yeah. I mean, the thing about the France game, I suppose Ireland played a lot better, and maybe see that's where the heartbreak. It was a bigger, may may have been a bigger occasion, but the Macedonia, Macedonia losing that goal is the worst. And can we would have qualified had that goal not gone? We would have gone straight there. Yeah. Whereas with the game in France, as Carlo Malley reminded us in the Irish Times this morning, Martin Hansen's failure to spot the handball was galling, but it prevented us from getting to penalties, not the World Cup. So perhaps we heroically failed to get to penalties. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. I mean, in the case of the France game, we didn't, uh, you know, we would have had to win a penalty shootout, which we probably wouldn't have won. And in the well, case... Well, 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 50-50 shout here. You know, we've, we, we, we've done all right in penalty shootouts. 1-1. So that's not bad. Yeah. We yeah, could have won that. not around anymore to... That Macedonia goal didn't go in and we were at the European Championships with Sudan and, you know, Roy Keane, Damien Duff and Roy Keane when they were quick. Stephen Carr. Stephen Carr. Coming up at six o'clock tonight. That's, yeah, they have asked for that, really. Well, you can laugh. I'm, walk up. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. But you don't know what you're talking about. What did you know? I managed to stay alive for six oh, I'd, like good good there. I'd say it to you, face, not say it to you now. I went down to Anfield and we'll see them, won't we? What you doing down here, you surely man. <laughs> well, I told you last week, Owen, that. Brazilian national team appointed a journalist to be their national team coach just before the 1970 World yeah, Cup. Yeah, that was a great story. You didn't think it was true? Uh, no, I don't think I didn't think it was true. I think you expressed disbelief. Yeah. No, yeah. just believe in it. I can't believe it kind of way, not I don't believe it. Well, uh, it's true, Owen, and we're going to find out exactly what happened uh, a little bit later on. Um, essentially, 1969, this guy had been shooting his mouth off <laughs> in the papers for so long, they said, well, why don't you give it a go? And he said, all right. And he ended up getting a 100% record as manager of the team. So we're going to learn a little bit about what journalists really do know about sport. That sounds great. Murph, I should say that Gordon Hamilton is sitting at home with his iPhone, his headphones tucked into the ears there. Mm. He's up in Bangor, wherever it is Gordon Hamilton's from. He's very <laughs> disappointed. Nice. Pretty dismissive of the six. Well, well you, were dis- you didn't, you, you didn't even mention him in your top five heartbreaking Irish. I had a bit feats. of a row. I had a bit of a row earlier on with uh, Mark and Simon. 
I thought Michael Lina deserved to be there in 91. Obviously, we just scored, we, we scored a try with four minutes to go in a World Cup quarterfinal. We've never been to a World Cup semifinal before or since. I think that's bigger than, than all of a sudden. Well, see, the thing is, though, that no, and this is how it was explained to me by my superiors, Ken, yeah. that uh, we, ne- we didn't expect that. So it's not heartbreak. It's like, we oh my God, we anything, have... didn't expect anything. I was day. heartbroken because, Murphy, I did tell you last week about my harrowing experience at the Dublin Mead game in yeah. 1991. Yeah. They were slagging off your banana, weren't I they? Also Those atten- Meads lads. I also attended that World Cup match, which would have been a few months later. I presume that the World yeah. Cup was a little bit later. It just shows how a young kid can adapt. My skin was toughened by that experience at the hands of those shirtless yeah. mead men. Yeah. And I was ready for that defeat. It didn't even it didn't even register, Ken. We lost, we won, we lost. Who cares? Oh, yeah. Michael Lina, Hamilton. thousand yard stairs. Never yeah, really I literally, I, I never felt an emotion at a sporting yeah. event after that day. Owen yeah. turns around to his uncle's middle-aged men, whatever, standing, sit, sitting beside him in the crest. I wouldn't say they were middle-aged listen, back then, Murph, but continue. Listen, it's sport, all right? Just get over <laughs> it. What the hell are you crying for? Paul Kimmage spread the net a bit wider to compare the Ireland heartbreak to Lauren Fignon losing it to Greg LeMond in the final day time trial at the Tour de France in 1989. Two legends at the time, uh, Greg LeMond, an American cyclist, of course, although not as unpopular or anything like it as Lance Armstrong mm. was for many years with the French fans, but uh, the home hero was Lauren Fignon. Obviously, he ended up losing it despite going into this time trial 50 seconds Ahead, we'll hear a bit of commentary. This is the legendary Phil Liggett on ITV talking us through the closing stages of this one. So the Tour de France comes out to the climate, climax. It's always threatened it would be. These two men have been Siamese twins throughout the race. Now the cord is broken and it looks like Greg LeMond might, but look at the finish by Fignon. They're all turned off. It's going to be close. 27-47. He must do. The clock is counting down. So are the metres to the line. This is going to be incredible. Fignon is bouncing off the barriers here. He's lost the Tour de France. The crowd has realised it. Laurent Fignon has lost the Tour de France. Right on the line as he comes over. 55 seconds is countdown. He has lost the Tour de France by eight seconds. Can you believe that? Donald Fignon has lost the tour and Greg LeMond has won it and Fignon has fallen over right in the crowd and collapsed on the floor. This is the end of the Tour de France and Fignon is down on the floor in amongst that crowd. We make his defeat eight seconds. Can you believe it? After over 2,000 miles, we've come down to the last 200 metres of the most incredible sporting event in the world at any time. There is Laurent Fignon in a total state of exhaustion. And Paul Kimmage is in studio. Paul, thanks very much for popping in. Pleasure. We followed your tweet yesterday. Uh, we said, still wrestling with the highs and lows, still wrestling the highs and lows of Ireland and New Zealand. Probably the cruelest defeat I've witnessed since Fignon lost the tour in '89. The first lesson there, I guess, is be careful what you tweet or we might drag you in and make you come into studio and do a piece about it. (laughs) Let's talk about the rugby, first of all, and what you witnessed. You've seen a lot of great Irish sporting events over the years, quite a lot of cruel ones in Irish sport, particularly. Um, Was there... Is there a fatalistic element of of watching an Irish sporting event that you feel, even with a minute to go, oh, this isn't going to happen. They're going to do something here to win this game. Well, I suppose like many, uh, I was watching the clock, you know, as much as I had all eyes on the game, I was watching the clock and watching it tick down. And someone actually did, I saw that on Twitter yesterday, someone actually did a screen grab of the scoreboard at 80 minutes, you know, Ireland still 22, uh, 17 in front. 
Um, so I was watching the clock all the time, and when we got inside the last minute and we still had possession, I thought, Jesus Christ, they're gonna they're gonna do this, mm. you know. And, and it was only then, really. I mean, I, I was sitting beside Neil Francis for the game, and he asked me at halftime. He said, "Well, what do you think?" And I said, well, "You know, I, th- I actually think they're gonna do it. I think they're gonna win." I said, "Because these guys are playing for history now," which was an incredibly stupid thing to say <laughs> because history was the one thing that was gonna stop them. In this, in the in terms of the uh, the pressure uh, that that brings, and I think that pressure probably. Uh, had a bearing on on Johnny Sexton more than anyone. I think he probably bore the brunt of that when uh, he had the chance to to seal it. Really, uh, with that penalty, I think everybody felt had he kicked that, that was it. We were home. Um, Even I, New Zealand have said that. Yeah, since. and and it was interesting to be sitting beside Neil because Neil had written a very good column that morning about New Zealand and what makes them good. And he'd spoken about you know once they get a sniff, that's it. You know they spot the. Uh, the antelope hobbling at the back of the pack and wants to see that, that's it. And, you know, when Johnny missed that kick, that was the antelope, you know, <laughs> starting to hobble. And that was and it was interesting that Hanson picked up on that afterwards. He said, they gave us a sniff. Um, so, you know, again, all of this stuff going through your head and you're watching it. But I was watching the clock and when we got inside the last minute, like, Jesus, Jesus, they're actually going to do this. Yeah, the fellow I was watching it with was, he, he, it was the same thing, but he, Almost whispered, whispered it to himself. I j- just heard it, but he wasn't saying it to me. He was saying, we're, we're, we're going to do this. And I think there was a general feeling yeah. that this could actually finally happen. Yeah, yeah. amazing. And, um, but and it then, didn't. <laughs> and then, I, you know, and, and that's where the cruelty came in. I mean, you, you know, haven't really believed in that last minute. And when they looked like they were over the line for it to end the way it did, and I totally agree, as everybody does, with Joe Schmidt afterwards when he said that look the draw made no difference you know mm. it was a win or nothing um, I was actually watching it with my girlfriend and she said the immortal words get over it you know it's only sport <laughs> at which stage you know I jumped out the window effectively you know because that's the one thing you really really don't want to hear you haven't been back to the house since no, no. At the, what made you think of the 1989 Tour de France Fignon Le Mans well I think like most people I was speechless I was actually very pleased uh, that I didn't have to work after it because I actually, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure how long it would have taken me. I mean, I suppose when you go to a match in work mode, you're prepared for it anyway. You look at the game differently. You don't engage possibly as much as a fan as you do when you're not having to write about it. So uh, that's my excuse and I'm sticking to it. But I was relieved I didn't have to write because I was actually numbed by it, you know. And, and I kind of think, well, how many other sporting events have I been at that have numbed me in this way? And it was really only Monday morning um, that I start, you know, being able to think coherently about it. And for whatever reason, I just felt Fignon is the one that came home to me because that, for me, was the the cruelest defeat I've ever witnessed um, in sport. And I just felt the parallels were there, you know, a team that had performed heroically, had, you know, come through 80 minutes... Um, and we're across the line and, and suddenly to, to lose it in that way at a time when, you know, history was beckoning for all of them was, uh, it just seemed so most cruel. Talk to us about Fignon, about 89. The, it finished on a time trial that year, uh, a time trial into which Fignon went in with a, what was it, a... 50-second lead. Was it a 50-second lead over Greg LeMond? So th- th- this time trial was supposed to be just almost processional for Lauren Fignon? Well, it wasn't processional, but I think 50 seconds and 24 kilometres was a lead that he would have expected to defend and a lead that most people, if not everyone, would have expected Fignon uh, to defend. Um, 
and I was an interested uh, spectator. I was actually I've actually been incredibly lucky when I think back on my career. Yeah. I mean, I've ridden three tours. Two of them are possibly, you know, there's a toss-up as to which was the greatest of all time. 86 was the battle between Fignon, Arfbin, Hino and, and Le Monde. And 89 was the, uh, for me, the greatest tour ever, the Fignon, Le Monde uh, finish on the Champs-Élysées. So it was very unusual for the race to finish with a time trial. I, don't, I think it was the first time ever mm. it had finished with a time trial. Um, and the cruelty came in the fact that you had Fignon coming back from, you know, he'd won the tour twice in 83, and 84 and had had gone into a period of struggling with injury and then had had this fantastic comeback in 89 where he'd gone to the Tour of Italy uh, a month before and had won the Tour of Italy had gone into the Tour as not the outright favourite that would have been Pedro Delgado but with a great chance of winning and then you had Greg LeMond who again was coming from uh, from a period where he'd uh, had almost died and had gone into this race as um, as a contender only, only because of the fact that you know he'd won the last time trial in the Tour of Italy, and I'd ridden that race with both of them, and and I'd seen Le Mans, I'd left Le Mans uh, in a state of utter distress on one of the mountain stages. The only time in my life as a professional cyclist I'd ever distanced Le Mans on a mountain stage of a, of, a, of a Grand Tour, yeah. and I'd seen him, and for him to come back and win that last time trial, I thought, oh my God, this is this is extraordinary, and then to see him. In that tour, the '89 tour, and be a first-hand witness to to the swing of the race lead because you know they exchanged the yellow jersey several times in the course of the race, but by the final time trial on the final Sunday, uh, I expected that, uh, as I think most people did, that that Fignon had had won it, and um, incredibly, uh, he lost it by eight seconds, um, and and the pictures again are. are uh, are they still vivid now? Of Fignon. Of Fignon after it. You know, on the cobblestones, just absolutely in utter, utter distress. Utter distress. And I caught, oh my God, you know, a Frenchman on the Champs-Élysées in the Tour de France, final stage. I just thought, no, this is this is too much. This is too much. And, um, and it was funny, I interviewed Greg about it last year. And, you know, Greg being Greg, he didn't actually get it, you know. He didn't actually get that. Because I mentioned it in those terms, you know, this was the uh, the cruelest thing in sport I'd ever witnessed. And he laughed about it at first, as if it had something that he had done. And I said, no, no, it's not actually that what you inflicted upon him. It was just that what happened to okay. him, the fact that it happened to him. And he said, yeah, he got it then. And then he, I, I reminded him actually afterwards that he'd sent me an email um, in 2009 um, a few weeks, a few weeks after Fignon had published his book, and uh, he said that it was just after Fignon had, had died, possibly just before it, when he was struggling with cancer. He said, Ironically, I was planning on seeing him last weekend, and from what I've heard, the idea that we had some sort of friendship was only in my mind. I never imagined that his loss in 1989 would bring so much hurt to him, but also so much negative anger towards me. It was just a fucking bike race. Uh, and you know, again, it's uh, Greg being Greg. He didn't quite get that it would bring. So what much. do you mean by Greg being Greg? Yeah, Greg is is <laughs> is uh, one of the most unique uh, human beings and certainly sportsmen I've ever met. He's he lives in this kind of <laughs> other world uh, um, that I suppose is the place for uh, a lot of. Uh, 
heroes live. They don't quite live in the same world that us normal mortals live. You know, that he couldn't empathise. And he says he did empathise, but I'm not sure he really did. And But then it was difficult for him, given, again, the extremes that he'd come back from in that tour. Yeah. Uh, the highs for him. I mean, for him to come back from 87 when he nearly died to win a Tour de France in 89, I mean, Jesus, it was only natural he would have been thinking only of himself. He did arrive that day of the time trial with complete with performance-enhancing equipment. Uh, aerodynamic helmet, a bicycle fitted with tri-bars, yeah. all this quite futuristic stuff yeah. at the time. And that seems to be at the source of the bitterness that Fignon feels. Fignon essentially felt Le Mans was cheating. Well, right? I think that was unfair uh, of, of Fignon. I mean, you know, he'd no right to feel aggrieved about that. He'd every right to feel aggrieved that he lost the tour, but I don't think it was right for him to, uh, to suggest that what Fignon had done, or what Le Mans had done in using those uh, tri-bars was breaking the rules uh, because he wasn't as entitled as as uh, as Lamont was to do that and to use them. And in fact, it was a curi- curious that he didn't because his manager, Cyril Guillemard, was always ahead of the posse when it came to innovation and, and using um, uh, anything new in terms of uh, technical edge that he could. And it was a surprise that he didn't. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, you look at it again and you see the way it's gone since then because, again, Lamont... Uh, set so many trends in the sport and was always ahead of the pack in terms of his ability to innovate and move forward um, and you look at the way they ride time trials now with the aero helmets and the glasses and everything compared to what Fignon did that day going out with the ponytail swishing in the air <laughs> and you think you know yeah you uh, you didn't think right about this or didn't get, think this through really When you talk Paul about the effect that it had on Fignon uh, was that clear in his book was this something that he carried with him through the years It is and uh, there's a fantastic passage in his book Owen and he says that you know for, for forever afterwards you know people would meet him in the street and they'd say you know you're the guy who lost the tour by 8 seconds and he'd say no I'm the guy who won it twice and that was that's the astonishing thing about it you know Laurent Fignon won the tour twice mm. and yet the pain of that defeat is what he took to his grave. It wasn't, in my view, the euphoria of having won the world's greatest bike race twice. It would have been the pain of what he suffered that day in 89. It seemed to have a knock-on effect on French cyclists. I don't know if these events are connected, but if you were told in 1989, not only will Laurent Fignon not win another Tour de France, but no French rider is going to win a, a Tour de France, at least not, not until now, what would you have said? Yeah, I wouldn't have believed it. Yeah. You couldn't have believed it. Um, especially coming off the back of Eno, who'd won in 80, 85, had won his fifth tour in 85, you would have expected that, uh, you know, one of them, one of the French kids was going to come along and do it. Um, it didn't happen, it hasn't happened, and it certainly is, doesn't look likely at the moment. There are, you know, a couple of good kids coming through, but, you know, in terms of a likely tour winner, I don't see it yet. Hopefully the Irish team won't carry the same sort of pain or bitterness over the years. Although you don't know, we were talking to Gordon Darcy earlier on, and he he said, look, there's no reason why we can't get to that emotional pitch week after week in the Six Nations. New Zealand do it all the time. We've been debating whether or not it is possible to get to that emotional and physical level. Are you concerned? Are, are you feeling positive about the Irish team now under a smart coach with a player, a group of players who've shown they can almost beat New Zealand or would you be worried that actually that's the kind of result that can kill a team? Well it was interesting I went down into the uh, mix zone afterwards and I saw Gordon and listened to Gordon and uh, he sounded um, uh, made some interesting comments I was more interested actually in Sean O'Brien who was angry about you know, was, the yeah. fact that they'd let it slip and I think that's indicative of the mentality now with the team look I've, I've listened to a lot of coaches uh 
in my time as a as a sports writer and indeed as a as a former I've never met anybody as impressive as Joe Schmidt. Um, I mean, I'd been listening to Brian O'Driscoll and people like that, you know, eulogising him for for some time now, and hadn't actually witnessed what it was about in Forest Town until after the Samoa game. And he came in to the press conference after the Samoa game, which is actually my first time uh, to to uh, to listen to him live, as it were. And you know, I think ninety nine percent of of coaches out there would have taken the plaudits that we sports writers throw at them when they win. You know, great start, Joe. Well done. He wasn't having it at all. Mm. He wasn't having it at all. And I was really impressed by that, you know, because I think it's only human nature that when uh, when anybody's thrown uh, credit at you that you accept it because you know that there's uh, going to be a lot of grief coming down the line. But no, he wasn't having it. And I think he is the greatest chance the team has now of, of moving forward and, and getting to that pitch they need to get to competing with... Uh, with uh, uh, New Zealand, because again, I was, you know, you look at Gary Halpin when I'm not sure what year it was when he scored that try. Oh, 95. We were talking to Neil Francis about that last week. Yeah, gave the, the two fingers. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but look, that's that's where we've come from. That was the height of what we could hope for back then. <laughs> I think our hopes are uh, considerably raised since. And um, but look, you just have to again be mindful of how how good we played for sure, but be mindful of the gulf still there between what we did and what New Zealand did. Because that golf was really obvious, certainly in that second half. I mean, to be sitting on that lead at half time and just to be there biting the fingers off yourself, knowing these guys were going to come at you and we're going to take you apart. And then to, to watch the way they did it in the last minute. I mean, that is a. We've got so far to travel before you reach that. And un, unless all of the Irish guys accept that and take that challenge on, they're never going to get there. All right, Paul, brilliant stuff. Thanks so much. Andrew, that's the question. That's going to be answered tonight. Tonight. So now, come here tonight. Tonight. Into Wexford Park, and they just must produce the goods tonight. Tonight. Their team is better set up tonight. Tonight. But they just, the bottom line is, Michael, they have to do tonight. Tonight. Second Captains Football. Available on irishtimes.com, Second Captains, and iTunes from 6 p.m. tonight. 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 All we can do at this stage is hope that the optimism that we've heard today is justified and that the Irish team can build on the heartbreaking defeat and can move on. But if not, Ken, I think we pass the torch to the footballers. Yeah. Rugby could be. Rugby's gone, Ken. It's back to football. Shane Long leading the way with his ridiculous couple of goals last night. Yeah. Um, Shane Long scored two great goals. I, I don't know if you saw the analysis afterwards on Sky, Owen, but uh, Jamie Carger mentioned both Dennis Burkamp and Kenny Dogleash in describing, well, Burkamp for the first and Doug Leach for the second, really? for the two goals. Uh, Gary Neville uh, didn't say much until it was put to him a couple of minutes later by the presenter. Um, Jamie's mentioned Burkamp, you know, as they showed this goal again. And there was a pause and Neville said, maybe. And everybody burst out laughing. So it went from being a really nice compliment to actually quite insulting. And of course, Twitter was aflame afterwards with the long for England calls. <laughs> well, Shane, Long, Shane Long tweeted it himself. Yeah. Um, it was Shane Hegarty, I think, from the Irish Times who, who tweeted it, uh, saying, saying, effectively, there's a lot of people on Twitter calling for saying, why is Shane Long not getting a call up for England? <laughs> this know, is that, ridiculous. It's better than Danny Welbeck. Sack Lambert. Sack the foe. Get Long in. And Shane Long retweeted it with the same thing. Lots of uh, faces crying with laughter. Were hashtag those remember Wembley. 
No. No, they're no. serious. Sure. They just don't, much, don't yeah. realize yeah. the change. And in fairness, like, this is the disbelief where I don't believe it as opposed yeah. to I can't believe oh, it. Oh, no. They, these people were definitely not joking. And it is. It's kind of one thing. It's kind of. It, it's quite funny. It, it was quite funny when I read it first. And then I did actually realize that Chain Long did score against England earlier this year <laughs> yeah. for Ireland. That's, it. That's so. what he says in sweet. Remember Wembley. I'll be giving Roy a call tomorrow, says uh, Shane Long. More Shane Long talk coming up a little bit later in Second Captain's Football. In the meantime, thanks, Skiron. Thank you, Owen. Thanks, Skiron. Thank you, Owen. Thanks, 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 Ken. Thanks, thanks for listening. We'll talk to you later. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowl and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowl and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.